Welcome to chapel this morning. Glad that you're here. It's been a good weekend. I don't know if you know about campus kitchens, but there's all kind of positive things like that going on on our campus. And we wanted you to be aware of it just so that you know um, about things you can get involved in, but also just things that your fellow classmates are doing. It's an incredible thing to be a part of this community. And one reason it's an incredible thing is because we have a men's basketball team who just represented us very well. If you are, we've had them in the last couple chapels, if you are part of our men's basketball team, a trainer, have any affiliation with the program, can you stand just so we know who you are? We just like to, like, we like to acknowledge you. Sometimes you've been embarrassed. Fantastic. Okay, what we're going to do then is, is I'm going to ask you to do this. When you see anyone affiliated with the men's basketball team, some of you have them in class, some of you are, are in different areas with them, I, I just ask that you put your hand on their back and say, thanks for representing us so well. We've read the interviews, we've read the articles, and you've done a great thing this year, so thanks for that. Two more notes. If you're a part of our equestrian team, anybody a part of our equestrian team? Yeah? Okay. Are you not the Big 12 champions in equestrian? We are. This just happened. I think you should, you should congratulate the equestrian team. Fantastic. I don't know if Sarah Butt is still back there or not, but Sarah Butt works with us in chapel. She's also a part of that team, and so thank you for reminding me about that. Last but not least, last but not least, certainly not least, we are not finished with the Duke Blue Devils. Because today at 6.04, you will be watching television and you will be rooting on the Lady Bears, correct? Fantastic. So make sure that you do that. Make sure that you participate in that experience together. Emily Saltz is here. She's going to share with us a little bit about what your student government is doing as well. Hi, y'all. I just wanted to come and invite you all to participate in Blinded. It's tomorrow night, and this is the third year we've done it, and it's really one of our favorite programs. What it does is bring together students from across campus and provide a safe forum for them to honestly and openly discuss diversity of all types. And the way it works is that when you arrive, everyone is blindfolded, and then they're randomly divided into small groups for discussion. There's a professor that leads each group and asks some probing questions, and you get to answer honestly and give your opinion, um, with the goal being that we can all better understand our own opinions and understand those of people who are different from ourselves. So please join us tomorrow night, it's March 30th at 8 p.m. in Barfield Drawing Room, and it'd be good to be early because we can only take 100. So please come out. Thanks. Thank you, Emily. I'm going to ask Adam Moore if he'll come on out. And, and the first thing I'm going to tell you before that is if you have a laptop out right now, you're going to want to put that up. And honestly, let me just be candid with you. We've, we've had a few issues with, with people in chapel not paying complete attention. And um, I, I can see you all from the stage. So I'm actually going to walk out there after this and we'll have a conversation about it. So I'm just asking you to be attentive today in chapel and be uh, attentive to our guests because we ask them here. And today, for instance, our guest has come all the way from Ireland to be here. So I'm asking you um, to pay attention while they're here. They've traveled a long way just to speak to you. And so let's give them the courtesy of our time and our attention. Um, I also want you to know that this I also want you to know that this guest we have today um, 
is part of the same conversation that we began last week with Brian McLaren. And if you are somebody who says, I'm really interested in these types of things, I want to explore more, um, Peter Rollins, who Adam will introduce in a moment more, more uh, completely, um, has some books out in the, in the lobby, as well as Brian McLaren's books are out there as well. And our Baylor bookstore are the ones selling them, so if you have your uh, Bear Bucks, that'll work as well. If you just want to be a part of the conversation and know more, um, pick up a book or two and, and read through that. Um, in the meantime, Adam Moore is going to come. He is one of our academic advisors here on campus. He's also involved with a group called Void here in Waco who are always trying to ask theological questions and are always asking um, and trying to explore what God means in our current context. So Adam, come share with us about Peter and our guests. All right, good morning. Uh, it's good to be here uh, this morning, and I'm just really, really pleased to be able to introduce to you uh, Peter Rollins and Padraig Otuma. They have come, as Ryan said, from Belfast, Northern Ireland, so they've come a long way for us this morning, and I'm glad that they're here. Uh, they are both part of a, an experimental faith community called ICON there in Belfast, uh, which Peter founded. And ICON is a little bit difficult to describe because I don't think you've ever experienced anything quite like it. Basically, they are mixing uh, music and poetry and art uh, and personal reflection and spoken word uh, in, in very creative ways to create uh, an atmosphere and overall experience that, uh, that opens you up to experience of God uh, and uh, an experience of, of even the of doubt and faith and, and how these things go together uh, in a very profound way. And so they've been experimenting with this for a number of years um, and, uh, and influenced me quite a bit uh, in their work. And so uh, they have been uh, a huge influence on the formation of a group here in Waco called Void. Uh, and uh, we're trying to, uh, to do some similar things uh, that ICON has done as well. So, so first I want to introduce Peter Rollins. He is a, a philosopher. Uh, he has a PhD in philosopher, uh, philosopher. He has a PhD in philosophy from uh, Queen's University in Belfast, and he is probably not quite like any philosophers you know, if you know any. Uh, and uh, he is uh, a storyteller, uh, a public speaker, uh, and uh, is well known for uh, for his parables uh, and his jokes being interspersed uh, in his talks. Uh, just as much as the philosophy and the theology. Uh, he's written a few books that you should check out, How Not to Speak of God. That was his first book. Uh, his most recent is The Orthodox Heretic, uh, which, uh, which is a collection of his uh, parables. Uh, Padre Gotuma is also a part of ICON, and he is a musician, a singer-songwriter, and a poet uh, who's also involved with uh, a number of peace and justice issues in Belfast. Uh, he's going to share with us first this morning uh, a couple of songs, and then we'll also share some poetry with us. Uh, and uh, lastly, I just want to, uh, to let you know that if any of this uh, interests you this morning, uh, I hope that you will join some of us tomorrow for a lecture that Pete will be giving at the Center for Jewish Studies. Uh, the Center for Jewish Studies is over in uh, Mars McLean Science Building on the first floor, uh, and he'll be giving a lecture there tomorrow at noon, uh, so I hope that some of you might be able to join us. Uh, but... Uh, uh, would you please help me to welcome uh, both of them this morning? Somebody's taken my set list from the front here. The yellow piece of paper has floated away. Somebody in the back. 
Will somebody steal my set list? Why have you abandoned me? Good morning. This isn't a joke. My set list is gone. <laughs> anyway, good morning. I'm Podrick, uh, and it's lovely to be here with you. This is my first time in the country of Texas, and I'm very glad to be here with you. Um, are you familiar with, uh, in the seventh chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, there's a, hey, hey there it is. <laughs> uh, in the seventh chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, there's a line when uh, Jesus is recorded as saying, um, who among you, if your son asked you for bread, would give him a stone? So this is a song about when somebody asks for a stone. waving to my sharp horns the horns that turn in words as I charge towards your warmth and your gift turns to a knife it pierces through my skin I pour my blood out feeling guilty small comfort for the place I'm in I remember when I lifted my hands, sang songs of mercy. I asked for blood when I was thirsty. I asked for stones and meals of boulders, and you hid your face until I was older. Irish side to my Irish hide has been screaming sweet Jesus in my dreams whipping where he pleases now the Irish side to my Irish hide has been screaming sweet Jesus in my dreams whipping where he pleases I remember when I lifted my hands, sang songs of mercy. I asked for blood when I was thirsty. I asked for stones and meals of boulders, and you hid your face until I was older. I'll come and wipe your tears away. I heard you say, I'll come and wipe your tears away. I'll come and wipe your tears away when you're way older. So I uh, live in Belfast. I'm not from there. I'm from the very south coast of Ireland, but I live in Belfast. 
And some of you may be familiar that between 1969 and 1998, there was a sustained period of conflict over who should be in control of the northern part of Ireland, whether Britain or the Republic of Ireland. Uh, and some of my work with um, Johnny, who was also part of the three of us who were over, has been to do some storytelling work with people. It's a small region, a million and a half people, and in 30 years, 3,700 people were murdered and 40,000 people were injured, which, considering the population, make, means that everybody knows somebody that either died or was severely injured. So in the course of my work, you hear stories that might go from faith to hope to murder, to chaos, to betrayal, to popular culture. So here's a little song that some of you will be familiar with parts of it. And I'm trying to capture a little bit of the chaos that some people live with. Life is a mystery Everyone must stand alone I hear you call my name And it feels like home When you call my name It's like a little prayer I am on my knees I'll take you there In the midnight hour I can feel your power Just like a prayer I'll take you I hear your voice It's like an angel crying I have no choice I hear your voice It feels like flying close my eyes oh god i think i'm falling out of control i hear your voice let the choir sing when you call my name it's like a little prayer i am on my knees i'll take you in the midnight hour i can feel your power just like a prayer I'll take you more love, more power, more of you in my life. I'll take you there, more love, more power, more of you in my life. I'll take you there, more power, more of you in my life. I'll take you there. call my name it's like a little prayer i'm on my knees i want to take you there in the midnight hour i can feel your power just like a prayer i'll take you zombie 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 It's the same old scene since 1916 in your head. They are fighting. They've got their tanks and their bombs and their bombs and their guns in your head. They are fighting, zombie.
My little pony, my little pony, running and tripping, life is for skipping. My little pony, skinny and bony, made out of plastic, hairs like elastic. My little pony, take me and hold me, what will my future hold? Zombie, 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 zombie. More power, more of you in my life. I'll take you there. Nice for me. Those applause for, for me, right? Yeah. Honestly, don't applaud them. It just encourages them. Soon they want to get paid. Then he'll want to go from bread and water that we give him to, to real food. And it'll just be awful, so please, for my sake. Uh, uh, where am I? Oh, yes. And in Waco. We are in the midst of a, uh, a tour. Uh, Podrig and Johnny McEwen and myself are going around pubs in America doing what's called the Insurrection Tour. And uh, it's through a mix of music and reflection. We're trying to explore the idea that uh, belief in resurrection means nothing if it's not participation in an insurrection. That, in a sense, Christianity has become an abstract thing. That something we affirm, as if we can tick all the right answers and that, that makes it all okay. It's something that we, uh, we affirm in creeds and in doctrines. Uh, we go to church every now and again. We might give some money to the poor. But it doesn't necessarily transform us uh, at our very core, in our very essence. Um, there's a story which I like. It's about a group of a Jewish community who are seeking refuge from persecution. And the story goes that they go to Vatican City, and Vatican City opens their doors and invites the community in. But the days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months, and finally it looks like it's going to turn into years. So some of the priests go to the Pope and they say, this is all very well looking after our Jewish neighbours, but... Uh, you know, it's getting, this is getting too much. They've got to find their own place. Now, the Pope says, well, it's not very Christian to kind of kick them out. So he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll debate with the chief rabbi. And if the chief rabbi wins the debate, they can stay. But if I win the debate, then they're going to have to leave. And the priests think this is great. So they go to the Jewish community, and the chief rabbi agrees. But there's a language difference, and they don't want to involve interpreters. So they do the traditional... Uh, a method of sign. One person will sign one thing and the other person will sign a response. So the chief rabbi goes into this massive uh, cathedral and in the cathedral the Pope is sitting there in a great throne and the Pope begins by holding up three fingers like this. And immediately, as if he knew that was going to happen, the rabbi holds up one finger. Now the Pope is a little bit taken aback. He thinks for a second and then he waves his hand in the air like this. And in response, the rabbi points to the ground. The Pope's sweating at the moment and he gets up finally and he has an idea. He goes to the altar and he picks up this great cup, a golden cup encrusted with jewels with red wine and wafers on this beautiful plate. And he holds the wafers and he holds the wine in front of the rabbi. And the rabbi, as if he knew this was going to happen, reaches around behind him, pulls out a crumpled old brown paper bag, opens it up, and pulls out a red apple. 
and then they part. So the priests get round the, the Pope and they see he's a bit upset. What happened? Pope says, well, I just lost. You know, fair and square. You know, I started off by saying God is three. And my rabbi friend reminded me, ah, God is one. And then I said, ah, God is transcendent. Above us, the whole world is in God's hands. And my rabbi friend, my rabbi friend pointed to the ground, reminding me that God is in our midst, in our neighbor, in the person sitting beside us. And finally, I brought the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Christ, the second Adam. And my rabbi friend reached in and pulled out an apple, reminding me of the first Adam. So when the rabbi returns, the Jewish community all come around and say, what happened? The rabbi goes, I can't believe it. I can't believe the cheek of that guy. He says, what, what happened? He says, first of all, he tells us we've got three days to leave. He says, what? I said, I'll tell you, you may say that, but not one of us is going. <laughs> well, okay, well, what happened next? And he says, you know what? He says, I'm going to round you all up. And I said, you can try, but we're staying rooted to the spot. And I'm like, so what happened next? And he goes, that's the most frustrating thing. He says, then we broke for lunch. Right? Like, I like that story because, you know, in some respects, that's what people see as a difference between Judaism and Christianity. One is, 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 is rooted in the earth, and the other is, is, is caught in abstraction. So theological abstraction, these beliefs, the Jewish communities focused on the earth. That the reality is, how do we bring these two together? The idea that, that our theology, if it isn't lived, if it isn't grounded in reality in, in, in our day-to-day existence, it's nothing. It's just a lie. It's something that makes us feel good about ourselves. See, God, and then God becomes what, what Bonhoeffer called the deus ex machina. Deus ex machina is so, a device, something that you bring into a piece of literature or, or a play that resolves a conflict that can't be resolved by the play itself. Battlestar Galactica did it um, at the end, where it kind of got brought God in at the end to kind of fit in some of its uh, some of the the storylines that they couldn't resolve. Um, but uh, the best example is Dallas. Uh, in season six of Dallas, you've got Bobby Ewing, and Bobby Ewing, um, yeah, they kill him off, uh, and, but he's the most popular character. And uh, so they go, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? The viewing figures have dropped, and so what they do is they go right at the very end. Um, we'll bring him back. And his wife wakes up, goes into the bathroom, and there he is having a shower. And they say the whole of the last season was just a dream sequence. So you know, they wheel God in just because, just, uh, because it, it, it resolves a conflict in the storyline. And Bonhoeffer says that's what God has become for many of us. God is what we wheel in whenever we're not sure about if life has purpose. We're not sure if, if we're afraid of death. We're afraid of what comes next, and so we wheel God in. Not some sort of reality, just an intellectual thing that we grasp. I mean, at its most fundamental, uh, God is simply what we need to function. When I was very young, my dad told me this story. He said that there was a Baptist minister, and every week after his fiery sermon, he would say to the congregation, and you know what? Now I'm going to the neighboring city and I'm going to serve the poor and I'm going to serve the oppressed. And he'd get a round of applause. And he'd say to his family and his friends, right, I'm packing the car and going. I'll be back in five hours. And everybody really respected the guy. Truth is, he had a golf set of golf clubs in the car, right? And he was just going to have a game of golf. He's like, oh, I've got to get rid of the family and friends and the, the congregation for a while. So every week he would do this. Now, we all know God doesn't go to church, right? So God didn't know about this. But eventually, 
an angel went to God and said, you know what, this Baptist minister, lying to everybody, uh, you know, saying he's serving the poor when he's, he's playing golf. So God goes, no, don't worry about it. I'll, pay, I'll teach the guy a lesson. So the angels are waiting to see what will happen. And God comes down the next week, and after the service, God follows the minister to the golf course. And as the minister takes his first shot, God just lends a little helping hand, and the ball goes up in the air, bam, straight into the hole, hole in one, perfect shot. The guy's amazed, looking around him, goes to the second hole, does the same thing, ball bounces, teeters, goes into the hole in one. Every single hole, one shot. At the end, God quietly withdraws, and the angels are furious. They say, you know, you were going to teach this guy a lesson. He's been lying to his congregation for years, and instead you gave him the perfect game of golf. You gave him a golf that Tiger Woods would weep over. This, this, no human being has ever done a feat like this before. What did God say? God said, well, that may be true, but ask yourself this. Who's he going to tell? Yeah, good, isn't it? Um, and that, that, that tells you something about actually what, what it is to be human. That, that what we desire most of all is not success so much as other people's desire. The most precious material in the universe is the desire of the people you desire. That's why when you lose your beloved and a relationship breaks up, you don't just lose one thing that you desire, one person that you desire, as if, you know, I, I, I desire my job, um, I desire, there's certain TV programs I really like, uh, you know, I really like my family, and I really like this, this person, right? And then you lose one of them, and you've still got four or five things you desire, but you've lost one. No, no, no. When you lose your beloved, you don't just lose something you desire, you lose the very ability to desire. The whole world becomes drained of purpose. You no longer desire your job. You no longer like the programs you used to like. Everything is drained of meaning. Because we get our purpose and significance through the gaze of another. That's why you know the story of uh, this guy, um, you know, you know, a student from Baylor doing media studies or something, you know, anthropology, I don't know. And he, he the, 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 this ship sinks and he washes up on a desert island, right? And the only other person who's on the desert island is um, some model, some girl who's everyone fancies. Lady Gaga. I don't know if anybody fancies her. I don't know. That's just kind of cool anyway. So we'll, do, we'll go with Lady Gaga. So honestly, the only two survivors are him and Lady Gaga. And he goes, this is amazing. And so he thinks, this is my chance. And so he kind of he keeps pestering her, you know, for them to kind of have a wee thing together. And she doesn't, no interest, you know, this media student. But eventually, after a few months, she goes, well, it's only the two of us on the island. Like, you know, this is it. This is it. So they have this passionate night together. And... The next day, he wakes up, and they're chatting. He says, oh, you know, I'm so glad this finally happened. He says, one thing I'd like you to do, I'd love you, could you just draw a little moustache on your face? Um, wear this cap of mine, and here's some jeans, and here's a shirt of mine. Can you just wear all of that for me and meet me down at the beach? She goes, like, this is a bit weird. Like, you know, I don't know, it's not my style, um, and all of that. And he goes, no, please, just for me. And so she does. She draws a moustache on and the cap and all that. She goes down to the beach, and he sees her. He runs up to her. He gives her a big embrace. He says, oh, it's so good to see you. He says, you'll never guess who I just slept with. Right? In other words, 
It wasn't enough to be with Lady Gaga. He needed to tell somebody about it, you know? He needed to tell somebody. So, God becomes... Oh, my goodness, we're going to this show. Okay, we need, need to stop. Um, God becomes the ultimate um, kind of uh, thing that justifies our actions because we can't face the fact that maybe we're going to die, maybe life is meaningless, maybe everything you've ever done is pointless, everyone you've ever loved is going, is going to nothingness, the universe, nobody's watching. We don't like that, so we kind of say, oh, there's God. God kind of grounds it all. That's not the Christian God. That's a lie. God is lived. That's the whole thing about Christianity. If it's not incarnated, it's a lie. You can say, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in God. I believe um, in the Holy Spirit. If we are not the site where God manifests in the world, it's just a lie. It's something we tell ourselves to feel good about ourselves. Doubt is part of faith. Christianity has a religion where God doubts God. Only religion where God says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Doubt is central to our faith. Doubt doesn't take away from it. Doubt tests whether our faith is real or just a fantasy. Now, how does it work? I'll finish with this. Is that... Take marriage as an example. I travel around America, and you guys get married very young. And quite often... Not all of you... But quite often someone will say this to me, oh, I've found the person I'm supposed to marry. You know, this is the person I'm going to marry. You know, this, this is written in the stars. This is what God wants. So absolutely, there's nobody else for me. That's fine. Anybody who's a bit older, most of us know that the reality is that's probably not the truth. Like, things can go wrong. Relationships can break down. It's not that easy. It's not like you pass the finishing line and it's all going to be rosy. It's, relationships are very difficult. The other thing is, see, if you don't experience the true horror of marriage, the true horror of of proposing to somebody, you're not a true romantic. It's terrible. It's the most awful thing you could ever do. Um, Think about it one way. You're saying to someone, "Um, I'm going to impose myself on you for the rest of your life. (laughs) How How dare you do that? You know what you're like, and you're going to impose yourself on another person for the rest of their life. That's terrible. You should be ashamed of yourselves. It's, awful. it's, all, it's really it's awful. Um, or look at it the other side. You're going to ask them to impose themselves on you for the rest of your life and all of their annoying habits and all of their idiosyncrasies when you could be out having a good time. It's terrible. Marriage, all, all the things that could go wrong. All the things. What, and and what, what's that? Is that bad to acknowledge that? No, because you see, if you go, I don't know if I love you. I don't know if you love me. I don't know what love is. You know what? This is probably going to go wrong. But you know what? I can't help myself. Will you marry me? I can't do anything but ask. Does that take away from the marriage process? Does that, does that make it weak? Or does that really fulfill it? You know, we're all running around trying to find the most romantic ways to propose. You know, I'll fireworks, I'll ride, I'll power plane, I'll parachute out, I'll do whatever, you know. Um, and you know why we're obsessed about trying to find the most romantic way to propose? Because we've lost the true romance. The true romance is whenever you go, this is horrific, this is awful, I don't even like you. <laughs> but, you know. But please, please, marry me. Um, and then you know that it's not some fake thing if, if, if the doubt comes in you go right I'm just going to clear off then then it's not real if the doubt in the, when, once you've had the doubt if you're still in your gut in your, if you bleed that person then you know it's real 
It's not some sort of fantasy that you have to tell yourself. So here it is. Last year I was in America and somebody asked me at the end of this talk, this debate, they said, well, it's theology, it's all very well, but um, I, get the, I get the feeling that you don't take Christian theology that seriously. He says, you know what, I want to ask you a question. Do you affirm or do you deny the resurrection of Christ? And for me, it was the perfect opportunity to come clean as a, as a Christian speaker, to basically be able to say, yeah, you've, you've, you've found me out, you've called me out. I do deny the resurrection of Christ. Of course I do. Uh, you know, I'm not going to make a secret of it. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to hide that. I'm not going to try and paint a nice picture of it. You're asking me straight, and I'll say it straight, and anybody can see it if they go on the internet. I'll do, I do. You know, every time I walk past someone who's suffering, every time I don't stand up for those who are forced to live on their knees, every time I don't cry for those people who have no tears to shed, don't speak out for those who have had their tongues torn out. Yeah, I deny the resurrection. And sometimes I affirm it. Sometimes I affirm it. Whenever I do stand up for those who are suffering, when I do look after the persecuted and the oppressed. It doesn't matter what I say, or I believe in the resurrection. I deny it when I am not the place where resurrection takes place. I deny it when life does not emanate from me, when life is not found within me, when I do not bring life to those around me. In the same way as a philosophy lecture, people say, do you believe in God? And I'm like, Let's talk about that at the pub. That's a great question. That's br- oh, you're asking me as a Christian? Oh, no, 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 I don't believe in God. No, no, no. No, because to say I believe in God means I live a life of love. I'm committed to those people who are around me who are suffering. Most of the time, no, I don't believe. Oh, intellectually, do I believe there's some sort of supreme being? Yeah. Do, oh, do I believe in God? Do I live it? Is it in my flesh and blood? Most of the time, no. I'm going to read you a poem that was written for um, some people in Uganda. I'm not sure if you're aware. In Uganda at the moment, there's a small effort to legalize a certain kind of human cleansing, which involves either death penalty or life imprisonment for certain people over a theological debate. This is not a liberal agenda. Think about the people in the prison in Uganda. These are bodies like yours, mine. Close your eyes. Please, close them. Do not open them until you've breathed a little deeper. Put the fingers of your one hand to the wrist of the other and keep your pulse a moment. Are you calm? Are you content with holding your own skin in your own safe and holy skin? Think about the people sleeping in the prison in Uganda. This is not a liberal agenda. These are people, not quite corpses, yet. And it's not about forgetting all your morals with some rationalist adjustment or some sad subjective judgment. The Samaritan did not sin, yet still was hated Berated, judged and deemed a lesser kind of human. Think about the people in the prison in Uganda. 
This is not some liberal agenda. The title of that poem, which I didn't give you at the start because I wondered whether it distract you from listening to it, is Intercession for Lesbian and Gay Ugandans. I'd like to invite you to stand for our final benediction. Uh, I'm Catholic and the Mass ends with um, The Mass has ended, go in peace. Some of you might be familiar with that. Uh, here's my version. The task is ended. Go in pieces. Our faith has been rear-ended, certainty amended, and something might be mended that we didn't know was torn. And we are fire, bright, burning fire, turning from the higher places from where we fell, emptying ourselves into the hell in which we'll find our loving and beloved brother, mother, father, sister, friend. So the task is ended. Go in pieces to love and love your world.